Well, I hope you're in your Bibles this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, as we continue our series and getting close to the end of our series on prayer that we've initiated here on Sunday mornings. Again, from the very beginning, we set out several weeks ago because we believe that as a church, from the leadership all the way down, we needed to be a church intentional about prayer. Meaning that we weren't just going to talk about it. We weren't going to just pay it lip service. We wanted to encourage everyone in our church from the very top all the way down to be men and women of prayer. And we knew that it would start with us as leaders. We could never ask our congregation to do anything that we ourselves were not doing. And as we moved from that, we started to integrate more prayer throughout the church service. And as we are working through the Word of God, looking at different aspects of prayer, that we believe that the Lord specifically has led us to a church to address. For we know that the bulk of the subject matter of prayer is enormous. And we could look at it from many different perspectives. So I simply wanted to choose aspects of prayer that I felt that our church needed to hear and to address. And as we were making our way through Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8 last week, looking at the necessity of persistence in our prayer, the commentators and scholars said, don't stop there. Continue on to verses 19 through 11, and look at the next illustration that Jesus gives us concerning prayer. It is an aspect of prayer that I think is all too neglected here in our particular nation. It is the issue of humility and the role humility plays in our prayer lives. And as I began to look and to consider humility, again, looking at my life first, considering my ideas and thoughts of humility and what humility is, I had to be honest with myself that I'm not sure that we as Americans truly understand the whole concept of humility. We live in a nation that's all about us. We have truly become the I generation, haven't we? And with that kind of predominant focus within our nation, how is it possible that true humility can be understood in a culture like that? Meaning, everywhere we look, everywhere we seem to gaze upon the society and the nature and the uh, the culture that we live in, it's all about us as individuals. We are submersed in that culture. In fact, I would say we're drowning in it. And therefore, when it comes to the issue of humility, we really have to make an effort to look at it objectively. We have to swim above the waves of our society and look at the real establishment of humility, which is the person of Jesus Christ. It is only a true understanding of Him and therefore dictating a true understanding of ourselves that true biblical humility can be obtained. There's no other way. 
We're not going to find it, discover it, obtain it, and maintain it any other way until we first understand who God is and then understand who we are. Then we can begin to grasp true biblical humility. Now, undoubtedly, there have been people that you have met in your life that you would consider a humble person. And maybe that is the case in comparison to other people that you know. But when we compare it to the humility of Jesus Christ that was so adequately displayed for us in his first coming, I ask you the question, who matches to that? That's where true humility is discovered. That is what we need in our culture to truly bring us to a point of humility. We find humility displayed in the prayer life of an kind of a individual that we might never have anticipated seeing it displayed from. But when we read of this account and this illustration in which Jesus gives us, it makes complete sense. I bring you to chapter 18 of Luke's Gospel, the ninth verse, and let us read the text for ourselves. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And then he went on. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Dr. Darrell Bach in his commentary on Luke stated this concerning the summary of this particular passage. The passage is a palmetic, or meaning a very strong word against the proud, and that is represented by the Pharisee. At the center of this pride is personal religious arrogance. Jesus speaks against religious snobbery that views oneself as more righteous than another. On the contrary, accepted by God involves personal humility and recognition of one's need for God's mercy. Humility, the basis in which God appears to be able to work in a person's life. Humbling him who exalts himself before God, but exalting one who humbles himself before God. As James wrote, he said, but he gives more grace, therefore it says... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Later on in James, a few verses on, humble yourself before the Lord, and He will exalt you. It is imperative that we understand what humility is. 
And it's been a lifelong endeavor by many who have studied the Word of God. Is it something that we can learn theoretically or just academically? Or is it something that has been displayed for us that we then should look to emulate in our own lives? And therefore the question then is raised, is it possible for us to simply emulate this humility? Or is it something that we must grapple with ourselves and come to a certain conclusion before this type of humility may be displayed in our own personal lives? It's an enormous subject. But if you track through the entire Bible, humility is the basis on which God works in the life of the individual. And I believe that many reasons that this humility is not often obtained and maintained in the individual's personal life is because they don't like what they have to go through to get there. Because it requires one thing that I notice that many people today are almost reluctant at least, but some refuse to acknowledge. You know what that is? Themselves. Because when I begin to look at myself through the Word of God, as a mirror, as it were, or I begin to look at the face of Christ through the Scriptures, I often then discover I don't like what I see in myself. And at that point, it's easy to recoil. It's easy to step back and to keep moving forward. It's easy then to stop at that point and rest in what we would like to consider our own personal self-righteousness. And we've determined that by determining that we are better than every, everyone else around us. You know, if all I had to do was compare myself to Chris, I'd be okay. I'd look pretty good. But, oh, wait a minute. Jesus Christ? Oh, wait a minute. That, 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 he was God. You know, I, I, it's impossible for me to even consider or parallel myself against such a person, such a unique individual. That's just not fair. That's the standard. And as we begin to look at Christ objectively, as we begin to read his word objectively, we are confronted with the reality of the own, our own wickedness and rebellion with our own hearts. And wrapped within that rebellion, wrapped within that wickedness, as it begins to unfold and peel away, we find the root of it all, pride. Staring us in the face. We are prideful people, aren't we? To the, de- our, the depths of our pride, I don't even know if we know because our own hearts are unknowable. Do you ever think about that for a moment? And we know the sin of pride and how, how horrific it is to God. And yet we are plagued with it. Is it possible to bring our prideful lifestyle into our prayer lives? It is. Is it possible that individuals can stand before God in their prayer lives, not on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, but on the basis of their own personal self-righteousness? Yes. Is it possible that one could even conceivably try to exalt himself before God by the downplaying of others around him? 
The answer is yes. And that's what Jesus brings to our forefront here in this parable, this illustration, this story. As the great teacher C.A. Spurgeon began to depth the, and plumb the depths of this subject of humility, he said this, What is humility of mind, he says? Humility is to make a right estimate of one's self. Humility is to think of yourself, if you can, as God thinks of you. Humility is to feel that we have no power of ourselves, but all that cometh from God. Humility is to learn, uh, lean, I'm sorry, on our beloved's shoulders, saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is, in fact, to annihilate self and to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as all in all. These were some of the last conclusions that Spurgeon came to in his life. That it was impossible to embrace true humility without truly embracing Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer came to this conclusion about humility. True humility is a healthy thing. The humble man accepts the truth about himself. He believes that in his fallen nature dwells no good thing. He acknowledges that apart from God, he is nothing, as nothing, knows nothing, and can do nothing. But this knowledge does not discourage him, for he knows also that in Christ he is somebody. He knows that he is dearer to God than the apple of his eye, and that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. That is, he can do all that lies within the will of God for him to do. This humility is balanced with a true understanding of how God views us. The sinful and the righteous work that Christ is going to do in and through us must be balanced together, one and the same, to understand this true identity of biblical humility. If we choose to proceed to walk in pride before the Lord, it is almost inevitable that we will then start to become critical of others who do not aspire to the same esteem that we inspire ourselves. Let me explain. If we choose to live in a self-righteous lifestyle, it is inevitable that we will look down upon those who choose not to reach the same goals that we believe we have obtained. Isn't that so true? Think about American society and how critical it has become of others. And think about it for a moment that as we see the increase of pride and the diminishing of humility, in the increase of pride, we also see a critical attitude towards almost everyone around us. Did you ever wonder and ever notice that no one is ever as good as you? And even when you start to inspire and see others that are better for you, somehow, some way, that instead of them just simply inspiring you, it still has become all about you. And now you think, oh, they're so good, I could never do it in and of myself. And we think that's humility? No, it's pride. Because the word I is still before you. See, you don't have a true understanding of how God sees you. You don't understand how God is able to see you and use you. We know that God saw us as sinners prior to us coming to Jesus Christ, 
But in actuality, we discovered that since the foundations of the world He predestined us from the beginning, He also saw the final work in us. And therefore could say with confidence, and Paul could write with confidence in Romans 8.30, that He who He has predestined, He ended with, we know that He is going to glorify. Right? You're a work in progress. And you need to evaluate yourself in the same light in which God evaluates you. Now, if I were to point you to any particular passage of Scripture that I believe identifies this great humility of the Bible, it would be Philippians chapter 2, if you would turn there with me. And I'd like to read these verses with you, and I'd like you then to consider them and highlight them, and then for your own time of devotion, later I want you to meditate on these things and to consider the aspect of biblical humility. Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By, ma- by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Whenever I consider pride and its great antithesis, humility, I think of this passage. The humility that Jesus Christ demonstrated by stepping out of heaven and coming in the form of a man, even though he was God himself. That should astonish you. That should be your theological motivation to move towards a position of humility. Right there. Because of what Christ has done for you. And to the degree that he humbled himself, subjecting himself to his own creation, even to the point of death, and not just any death, not a death at a ripe old age, after a long life, years of retirement, Decades on the golf course, but the death of the cross. This is the degree that Christ humbled himself to allow him to fulfill the purpose and plan the Father had for him. How much more then should we humble ourselves before God? You consider it for yourself. I believe that's what Paul was saying. But as we come back to chapter 18 of Luke's Gospel, We find from the very beginning that we are told what this parable is meant to mean. 
There are those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Again, anyone who is moved by pride will eventually come to the conclusion that he is better or she is better than everyone else, therefore looking at others with contempt. As one wrote, he said this, This condescending, superior attitude makes it difficult to serve others. Pride and contempt for others may be a natural pair, but Jesus condemns them both. As one wrote concerning the background of this story, they said, This parable illustrates the need for a humble and contrite heart before God. In the parable, forgiveness comes not to the proud and self-righteous Pharisee who thinks that his good deeds have earned him a right standing before God, but to the tax collector who recognizes his own sinfulness and prays for mercy. The parable probably shocks Jesus' listeners who consider the Pharisees pious and upright, but the tax collectors wicked and sinners. And so we come to these two men in verse 10 and to the illustration that God is bringing to our attention. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Common occurrence, collectively, the Jewish people went there twice a day, 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock and during the day, to pray. This was a common occurrence. And it would be a common occurrence for a Pharisee to lead the progression up to the temple. And the other being a tax collector. Now this was more puzzling, undoubtedly, to the audience that Jesus was speaking to. Because tax collectors were some of the most despised people in Israel. These tax collectors had sold themselves to their oppressor, the Roman Empire. Often, not only collecting taxes for Rome, but collecting extras for themselves, ripping off their own kindred people. They were despised by the Jewish people to the point where they would be equated with untouchability, which is not something that we, are really, that we really know of here in this country, but around the world there are just certain people that are so ostracized by their society that there is no reconciliation. They're often, they often live lives of complete isolation and separation and often can find consolence only in others just like themselves. People didn't want to be around tax collectors. So for the Pharisee to go and pray, well, that was common occurrence. For the tax collector, however, this was something unique. What, what Jesus? A tax collector. The Pharisees, again, despise the tax collectors. These are the antithesis of, of the two heads of the coin there in that culture. You are looking at both sides of the coin. And undoubtedly, Jesus is setting us up for his ultimate illustration. Notice when the Pharisee came, the Pharisee standing by himself, interesting phrase, we'll look at it in just a moment, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Heavenly Father, I thank you that I am so much better than each and every person here. I am undoubtedly your favorite. I can't believe, Lord, I cannot believe 
how much you have favored me amongst all these people, especially more than Chris. Thank you, Lord. Now, this wasn't necessarily an uncommon Jewish prayer. Uh, It wasn't uncommon necessarily to speak of a separation from the wickedness of the world. We see this in the Psalms a couple times. A couple other Old Testament passages too. But there's a heart that's coming through here. It isn't just separated from wickedness. It's contempt for others. It's It's the fact that pride has swollen their entire being, has infected every aspect of their being, and their self-righteousness blinds them to their own pride. Exalting himself before all there in the temple. It is interesting that the phrase here is standing by himself. There's two things in mind here. Number one, he is standing by himself. The, The place of prayer in the temple was simply a courtyard, and there was a prominent place within the courtyard where everybody could see you, and that was in the middle of the courtyard. And that's where the Pharisees would go and often offer their prayers, uh, somewhat to be example to the others and to also obviously exalt themselves before the people. See, up until the time of Christ, people did not look at the Pharisees as hypocrites, as individuals who filled with self-righteousness. That's a revelation that Jesus Christ brought to the scene, that this young 33-year-old carpenter would have the audacity to say something like that to the religious Pharisees, not knowing that that young man was God himself. The people revered the religious leaders at that time. They respected them highly. And him praying in this way wouldn't have been necessarily uncommon. But Jesus is bringing out something more here. Because the whole question is, whose prayers got to God? Whose prayers and who, whose person was accepted by God? Standing by himself could mean that he was simply standing in a prominent place within the temple. But other grammatic scholars believe that there's something more happening here. That he could have honestly been praying unto himself. And the grammar scholars debate, and Daniel Wallace brings this out very clearly. And he says it could go either way. For the new King James renders this, verse 11, Then the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. He wasn't even praying to God. He was praying with himself and completely happy and content to do so. God wasn't even in the picture. Daniel Wallace says that by him saying the word God, it was really nothing more than a mere formality. But his prayers probably weren't going any higher than the colonnade itself. And why was he so thankful? Why did he believe he was so much better than the tax collector that was standing there? Verse 12. I fast twice a week. Now again, this was above and beyond the call of duty. In the Old Testament, the only time they had to fast was during the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees wanted to go above and beyond, so they made Monday and Thursdays the days to fast. And by him stating this, he is saying, by my works, I am exalting myself before you. I have obtained a degree of righteousness in and of myself, and I stand here before you within it. But then he also goes on to say, I give tithes, verse 12, of all that I get. 
Now, they were required by the law to give tithes of certain portions of things that they get, but they went to the extreme. If you read the Talmud, which is the Jewish uh, commentary on the Old Testament law, you'll discover that their idea of tithing everything meant that everything that they were given, they would take a little bit off and give to God. Down to the herbs in their kitchen, they'd give a little bit to God. Again, piety, righteousness, self-righteousness. This isn't what God asked them to do. They went above and beyond and felt, he felt, that this was sufficient to exalt himself above the tax collector standing afar off. And this is the manner in which he came to God in a heart filled with pride. Maybe it's self-righteousness in your life. Maybe it's simply pride in your life. Maybe you've grown critical of others around you and you have brought that critical attitude into your prayer life and you're wondering why your prayer life is not effective. God is challenging that here. God is saying to you, you need to get your heart right with me. Five times this Pharisee uses the word I in this one statement. Do you notice that? I, 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 I. And then he moves to a very derogatory term that is found in the Greek word huto, and it's found in the word this. I, 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 I am so much better than this tax collector. Huto. I'm better than this tax collector. The pride, the self-righteousness. As Daryl Bach summed it up this way, this man was simply praying this, I thank you, God, that I am such a great guy. <laughs> I love that. Really hits home. As Warren Wordsby writes, he said the Pharisee was deluded about prayer, for he prayed with himself and told God and anybody else listening how good he was. The Pharisee used to pray as a means of getting public recognition and not as a spiritual exercise to glorify God. But David Gusek quoted a man named Pate. Something for us all to consider, and I want to read this to you because it was probing to me. It is entirely possible to address your words to God, but actually be praying to yourself. Because your focus is on yourself, not on God. Your passion is for your agenda, not God's. Your agenda is my will be done and not thy will be done. The man was full of praise, but he rejoiced not for who God was, but rather for who he was. Fantastic. We must be careful in our I generation prideful generation that we don't bring this pride self-righteousness critical heart attitude into our prayer lives why it's going to render our prayer ineffective before god instead of reciting our accomplishments when we kneel and bow before our father we should be looking to remember his accomplishments in and through us thanking him for all that he has done thanking Him for the work that He is still doing and is yet going to do. Prayer should be centered on God. 
not on ourselves. Another one of my favorite pastors, Tony Evans, recently stated this story, and I have to read this to you. He said, a lady went to her pastor and said, Pastor, I am terribly in need of counseling. I've got this sin. I can't seem to shake it. The sin is messing with me, and I can't seem to get rid of it. And the pastor was concerned for the apparent dilemma for the lady and his congregation. So he said to her, what seems to be the problem? Well, I come to church every Sunday, and I can't help thinking that I am the prettiest woman in the church. I look at all the other ladies, and they can't even hold a candle to me. What should I do, pastor, about this sin? And he said, Honey, that's not a sin. That's a gross mistake. (laughs) You got to love Tony Evans, don't you? We have a tendency to evaluate ourselves one way. But in actuality, we're not seeing ourselves clearly at all. And that really sets the stage for what we discover here in verse 13. But the tax collector, again, this man despised by society, this man who probably needed to hide himself as he was coming up to the temple, walking the steps that took him to the top to where the temple could be entered in, knowing that everyone around him knew that he was a tax collector, Again, Jesus uses this symbolically because everybody would have known and understood what he meant by it. In fact, Matthew was a tax collector. Interesting that history tells us that there was some real contention at first between Matthew and Peter because Peter hated tax collectors. But they had to reconcile because now they were both followers of Jesus Christ. Kind of an interesting little point there. But it says that this tax collector, knowing that he was already despised by society, hated by society, and for him, the Jewish people meant the heart of God. What do I mean by that? The Jewish people were meant to reflect God to people. Do you realize that if someone comes into our church and they feel like they are excluded or they feel that they aren't good enough to be amongst all of you, or if they feel like they are being isolated or looked down upon, do you understand that they will take that directly to God, thinking that God thinks the same way to them? How many times have Christians give people the wrong perspective of God towards them and towards others? This happens all the time. It says this tax collector stood afar off. And it probably meant that if the, the religious leader, the Pharisee, was standing in the most prominent position, that he was in the most unlikely position, that he was in the most, you know, discreet position. He was in a position of almost hiding. And many believe that he was hiding amongst the colonnades. Didn't even want to look up to God. Look at this. Standing afar off in no place of prominence, in no place of attention. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. I can't even go there. I am not able to. 
but beat his breast. A, a term that we, again, might not be familiar with, but I've discovered that historians have told us that Jewish people, knowing that it is the heart that is desperately wicked and they could do nothing about it, would often demonstrate that frustration by beating their breast. I have this wicked heart that I cannot change. It means he did it again and again in the Greek. It's in the continuance. He just looked down and just beat his breast before God. I am wicked before God and I can't change myself. That's what he's saying here. He was aware of his corruption. He was aware of his sin. He was aware of his limitations. He was aware of the fact that he could do nothing about it. As Spurgeon said, Oh, this wicked heart. He would smite it again and again. He expressed his intense grief by this oriental gesture. For he did not know how else to set forth his sorrow. I don't know what else I can do. I can't change myself. And he says to God simply, Be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the most profound thing a person can say before God if they are saying it with sincerity. You know that they are brushing the hem of true humility. If they can come to this place. The word that is used for merciful there in the Greek is halaliskimia. It is actually a word found for atoning sacrifice in the fullest sense of what the tax collector said was, God, be merciful to me through your atoning sacrifice for sin because I am a sinner. The only place that this word was found elsewhere in the New Testament is Hebrews 2.17. I'll read it for you. It is found in the English word propitiation. Therefore he had made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Meaning, what I can't do myself, God, I'm asking you to be merciful for me and do on my behalf. That's what he's saying here. The guilt, the shame that I have because of my sin, because of who I am, my heart is so wicked before you, I can do nothing to change it. All I can do is merely stand here and beat upon my chest. There's nothing more for me to do. Which brings me to an interesting thought. Today I am reading more and more about the epidemic of guilt that is plaguing our society. Counselors are discovering that more and more people are coming to see them because they feel guilty inside. And it's interesting that the psychologists and psychiatrists would try to take the tact of eliminating that guilt by showing them that they are not truly guilty, they haven't done anything wrong. And they've come to the conclusion that they are becoming very ineffective, that it isn't really helping anyone, that the guilt remains. I think it is interesting here that this man saw his guilt, looked at it honestly, and went to the one place that can rectify it for him. God. Maybe it's time those people who are struggling with guilt went before God and said something, those two words that are so difficult for prideful people to say, forgive me. I'm sorry. Have mercy. 
I wonder how much of the guilt would be alleviated if we went to the right place where guilt could be alleviated. But again, we try to lessen the guilt. We try to diminish the emotion. We try to alleviate it by telling people that they are not guilty. Oh, you're not wrong for what you did. Okay, everybody is just like you. Don't, you're not wrong for that. But I feel so guilty. But you're not wrong. We have raised a generation, and unfortunately we seem to continue to be raising a, genua- a generation that doesn't understand that there are consequences to their actions, good or bad. And because many parents are reluctant to discipline, they have taken, I want to be my, f- my child's friend rather than their parents' approach. Children are growing up with, unbeknownst to them, that there are often devastating consequences to their action. And I can't tell you how many times Dean and I, in talking with people, individuals will find themselves in these devastating consequences, but they also expect someone else to, to alleviate it for them. I don't want to do it myself. That's too painful. Well, that's how you learn. That's how you learn not to do it again. And I'm also amazed by how many Parents are jumping into their kids' lives and alleviating those consequences so they never learn from those consequences. And I can't tell you how many of those children do the exact same thing over again. Maybe it's time that we took this guilt to where it needs to go. This conviction where it needs to go to God and say, God, forgive me. Is there something in your life that you feel guilty over that you're not dealing with, that you're trying to justify in your own heart to try to alleviate that guilt? Why don't you cease those endeavors that are never going to satisfy you? Why don't you now just go to God plainly and confess it, get it right with God, and it will be alleviated. You still might have consequences that you need to work through, but God will be there each step of the way to work through those consequences with you. This person took his guilt to the only individual that was able to do anything about it, and that was God. I think that's amazing. Lastly, look at what Jesus says, and we'll close with this. I tell you, this man, the same word there, as the Pharisee used it as a derogatory term towards the tax collector, our Lord and Savior uses it as a term of exaltation. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, well, he will be humbled. But, every, but anyone who humbles himself, he will be exalted. There is a lot of debate concerning the depth of this word justified. Does it mean that God merely accepted this man based on his humility? Or were there issues of salvation contained within it? Did this tax collector find salvation and this righteous man or self-righteous man not find salvation? They debate that. But we see here that clearly Jesus spells it out that the one man was accepted and the other man was rejected. And summing it up, because we don't know for sure, but summing it up, we could write it this way. The saint, you and I, has the right to approach God boldly. And aren't we thankful for that? But does that negate the necessity for humility 
as we approach God nonetheless. Just because we have the right of access doesn't mean that we can go in self-righteously and pridefully before God the Father. Or, as like my father used to say to me quite often, do we need to check our attitude at the door to make sure we're approaching God properly? William Barclay, in his famous commentary on Luke, wanted us to know three things about prayer, and we'll close with this. He says this parable unmistakably tells us certain things about prayer. Number one, no one who is proud can pray. The gates of heaven is so low that none can enter in it save upon their knees. Pride hinders our prayer lives. Self-righteousness hinders our prayer lives. A critical attitude towards others that is filled with contempt hinders our prayer lives before God. Number two. No one who despises others can pray. In prayer, we do not lift ourselves above others. We remember that we are one of a great army of shining, suffering, sorrowing humanity, all kneeling before the throne room of God in desire of His mercy. And number three, true prayer comes from setting our lives beside the life of God. True prayer comes from setting our lives beside the life of God. No doubt, he says, and I want to read this to you, that the Pharisee, all that the Pharisee had said was true. He indeed fasted. He meticulously gave his tithe. He was not like the other people, still less he was like the tax collector. The question is not, am I a good as my neighbor? The question is, am I as good as God? It all depends on who we compare ourselves with. And, we set, and as when we set our lives beside the life of Jesus and besides his, the holiness of God, all that is left to say is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I truly wanted to bring this passage to your attention to have you consider its implication. Because I think pride is so prevalent in our society that we sometimes no longer recognize it as pride. I am convinced that if married couples around the world who are struggling in their marriage would deal with pride, they would begin a pathway to a healthier marriage. If that pride has led to selfishness, if they contend with that selfishness and to become more selfless in the mindset of humility, their marriage would begin to become like the marriage God would want it to be. How has pride affected your life? Have you lost the understanding of what God has done for you? Do you actually believe, maybe you've walked with the Lord 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years, and that sanctification process has brought you a good distance out of the world. Are you now becoming a little self-righteous and critical of others? Do you find yourself growing in contempt in other believers who don't seem to be doing as well as you are? These are all things that must be brought before God if we are going to have a healthy prayer life. Consider all that this illustration shows us and demonstrates for us. And then ask yourself, when you pray, are you praying in the presence of humility? Humility.